It's dangerous because in the wrong hands, I think it can be used in a very exploitative way. I think there's a lot of privacy concerns. I don't necessarily think any of the technology is bad per se. I just always, as a privacy advocate, feel like people should be completely educated and aware about who has their data and how it's being used. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was a story of a gentleman who came back from vacation and found out that his credit card limit had been lowered. And when he called his credit card company to figure out what was going on, he was told that based on his online behavior, he had visited websites that were highly correlated with profiles of people who defaulted on their payments. So it's called weblining. It's when you start seeing the implications of certain things that you thought were unrelated, having these real life impacts on your day to day. I wanted to thank today's show sponsor, Pitney Bowes. Pitney Bowes is a company that helps e-commerce companies with their shipping needs so that I could get my goods from A to B and make my customers happy. It's incredibly expensive shipping these days, especially trying to compete with a lot of the big box players. And Send Pro Online by Pitney Bowes helps you do that in the fastest, most cost-effective way possible. If you go to pb.com, slash angel, you'll be able to get a free 30-day trial, get a 10-pound scale shipped to you, and never pay extra, never pay too much on your postage and shipping. Again, that's pb.com slash angel. Check them out for more details. And if you are running an e-commerce company, this can save you 40% over the U.S. Postal Service. So it's incredibly valuable and worthwhile. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. And we had some technical difficulties beforehand. We were saying technology is great until it sucks. And I think that's been part of the theme of your work, technology becoming a force for good and eventually overpowering. Can you talk to me? Genetic DNA or what online DNA? You talked about that a bit in the past. Yeah, I think. Okay. So, wow. You just like threw all these crazy questions at me. We're going to get right into it, which, which I'm very into. None of this like preamble. One of the things that really interests me in the way we talk about data is that I hear a lot of comparisons like data is the new oil. And I think I hear a lot of people talking about data as though it is the new oil. And on the surface, it sounds like a pretty apt comparison, right? It's a resource, you can mine it, it's very valuable. But when we talk about it that way, we tend to lose the intimacy of the reality of what we're actually collecting about people, which is it's not oil. It's I always call it, you know, data is almost like the digital blood. We're collecting information and wishes and hopes and secrets and behaviors and intentions and, you know, ideas and all of that gets collected and then put together in these quite detailed profiles of ourselves that exist online. And so in many cases, what's happening now, especially as we're getting through what I call the second data revolution, if the first revolution was abundance and so much information, the second revolution is how integrated all of those data sources are and how companies are capable of patching together a quite eerie representation of, of who you are online, then our online persona, our digital DNA is an extension of ourselves. But unlike our public persona, I don't think people realize quite how much they're sharing of their personal and private lives. And that's super problematic because we're online more and more. We have more devices per person every single year. It's a yeah, it's a big it's a big thing to tackle. It's a big thing to tackle. It's happening so gradually. And I think many people, uh, because we're entering this age of, of integrative data, I think people don't realize the guesses that we can now make about their behavior. So if the first data revolution was about you deciding to share something, you know, you posting something on Facebook or Instagram or writing a blog post. you would consider, okay, like I can see how people could learn things about me based on the things that I'm voluntarily sharing out into this in in, onto the online space. Now what we're seeing is we're seeing you posting something or you visiting a website, maybe you're not quite aware that you're broadcasting your actions in this way online, but we're still making these deeply insightful guesses about whether or not you're going to have a baby, whether or not you're looking to buy a house, whether or not you're planning a vacation, whether or not you're having an affair, things that you're not volunteering, but that we can infer based on these disjointed digital behaviors that algorithms are able to stitch together to create a pretty reasonable 
idea of what it is you're trying to do online. Why is that dangerous? It's dangerous because in the wrong hands, I think it could be used in a very exploitative way. I think there's a lot of privacy concerns. I don't necessarily think any of the technology is bad per se. I just always, as a privacy advocate, feel like people should be completely educated and aware about who has their data uh, and how it's being used. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was a story of a gentleman who came back from vacation and found out that his credit card limit had been lowered. And when he called his uh, credit card company to figure out what was going on, he was told that based on his online behavior, he had visited websites that were highly correlated with profiles of people who defaulted on their payments. So that's called weblining. It's when you start seeing the implications of certain things that you thought were unrelated, having these real life impacts on your day to day. And people always say, it's not a big deal. I don't have anything to hide. Or they say, as long as the people I trust have the data, that's okay. But the nothing to hide eventually leads to minority report. And the people you trust inevitably leads to the dictator you didn't choose that accidentally comes up in the regime after the first guy. Yeah. And I've always found this idea um, that you have like nothing to hide to be, I don't know, I find it kind of strange because I, I don't think, I don't know, I don't really think it makes a lot of sense to me. Like being a private person, you know, I don't think, you know, I haven't broken any laws and I don't engage in criminal behavior, but that doesn't mean that I want my, you know, the, the inner details of my health, of what's happening in my family, of, you know, what's going on at work, of, of, of my opinions about things. I don't necessarily want to trust all of those pieces of myself with a corporation, you know, a corporation that is invested in generating revenue, that is invested in delivering shareholder value. So, for me, I, it's it's not even a matter of oh, if you're if you're if you want to hide something, it's because you're doing something wrong. I just think that the expectation of privacy is kind of evolving, and we're not quite as aware of what we're sharing. It's like if I said to you, imagine every single private conversation that you've ever had with any individual, like face to face, is going to become totally searchable, and like it's it's going to exist on record somewhere. And in essence, people treat their Facebook Messenger messages, their text messages, their emails, they treat them as though they are quote unquote private. And that's just not the case. They're not quote unquote private. Like we've seen examples of emails being brought in court cases and, and emails being brought up in all sorts of different ways. And so I just think it's it's about really understanding what pieces of yourself you're choosing to share. And that has nothing to do with whether or not you have something to hide. And there's the part you share. And like you said, the part where it's the one way mirror that you don't even realize your life is under a microscope. Yeah. And I'm all about people choosing. If you really don't have a problem and you want to live your life fully open, fully transparent, you want to give every company, every single data you know, piece about you, and that's what you're actively choosing to do, more power to you. I mean, if that's what you want to do, go for it. But there's a difference between choosing to do that intentionally and there's a difference between doing it inadvertently because you haven't quite understood the privacy settings on what companies are doing with your data, how they're using it, and how it's being used to create these profiles about you. For me, it's all about like choose what you want, right? But the, the active verb there is choose. It's not just like go along with it and then suddenly discover you know, that, you're, that, that it's not. I'll give you another weird example. I was just reading the other day that there are these startups that are using predictive analytics, again, around like credit scores and, and your ability to repay loans, but they look at the um, grammar accuracy and the complexity of how you write in text messages and emails and uh, like social media messages, looks for things like spelling mistakes, sentence structure, and then they correlate that with potentially like other variables to figure out how your, the likelihood of you defaulting, say, on a credit card loan or something is. So imagine all of a sudden your text messages, you haven't done anything wrong. You've got nothing to hide. Your chats are perfectly harmless. Like it's, you know, so imagine all of a sudden that's just an extra input that might determine what mortgage you get or that might determine your credit card limit. All of a sudden it doesn't seem like quite so innocent. And again, you haven't done anything wrong. Let's play devil's advocate. What if we lived in a communist or socialist type society where taking that extra input allowed you to work inefficiencies out of the system. So while you might be paying slightly more, other people would be paying slightly less. And on average, getting rid of those profits and getting rid of the inefficiencies made it better on the net for everyone. What then? I don't think you have to choose between efficiencies and privacy. I think it's about designing systems that are human-centric, designing systems that are ethical at the core. I think if you can make a really good case for why you need to collect that information, if you're clear and transparent about the type of information you're collecting, 
what you need it for and how you're going to use it. And if you can make that case to the user that in volunteering this information, uh, it will give them efficiencies, it will create this positive benefit, then I don't really see a problem with it. My issue is with the fact that there is very little transparency into what's happening with their data now. You know, we voluntarily share information all the time. Like, I like my Amazon recommended, you know, the, the recommended books to read and the recommended purchases. I like my, net, my Netflix queue. I like when Spotify is sharing with me, you know, new artists and things that it thinks that I would like. Like, that's okay because I kind of know. But if all of a sudden you were telling me that my Spotify list was being used to potentially decide whether the music I listened to was going to make me an increased risk of defaulting on my credit card, I might just say, wait a minute, I really want to think about this to see whether or not participating in this is going to be beneficial to society. So I believe that data can be incredibly beneficial to society. It can really do a lot of good. It can help prevent, it can help track and predict outbreaks of diseases. It can help emergency response people. It can, like, it can do all sorts of really fantastic things, but it has to be done in a transparent and ethical way. And unfortunately, right now, ethics is not the cornerstone of a lot of these algorithmic strategies that we're seeing. Well, Facebook and Zuckerberg asked for your phone number for two-factor, and then they used that for all kinds of retargeting and finding out exactly who you are. It's a, it's a terrifying, terrifying world. Oh. You and yet, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was saying, and yet what's so funny is that Facebook through their actions have shown you exactly their data philosophy and how much they are just believe in radical transparency and how much they want to mine everything about their users in, you know, under the guise of personal relevance. But they've shown you exactly who they are. Facebook's entire strategy you know, back when they were a startup, which I guess they've kept as, you know, fail fast, fail often, or break things as you go. Now, unfortunately, there's this like global platform with billions of people. So when you break something, quote unquote, like people are feeling the impacts in their real life. So I'm just surprised that people are surprised when these things keep happening, when they have a repeated track record of saying, oops, sorry. How much of that's just willful ignorance and human condition? In terms of, you kind of see it, I mean, you're fat and you go to McDonald's and you wonder, and I, it's, it, it's rude to say, but I think it's important to emphasize that there are similar things. Well, this goes back to, I think there's definitely a, a complicity of us in using it. I mean, we are complicit in the sense that if you don't read the terms of service and if you scroll, scroll, scroll to the bottom and click accept, 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 then you are giving up your agency in order to sort of play by the rules that they've set out in the terms of service agreements. And so we're definitely willing participants. I just think I just think we've underestimated the severity of the risk of what can happen here. I mean, let's not just look at what happened with Brexit, look at what happened with the 2016 elections. Like we've it's it's doing it's it's rippling out into the world in ways that we never ever thought was possible. So we went suddenly from, oh man, Facebook might accidentally access my phone number to was this platform used by a foreign government to meddle in a democratic election? Like, those are pretty insane societal ramifications. They are. I find it real ironic, though, because it's what the US has tried to do with everyone else. So when people get upset about it, it's kind of like, we lost our own game. You, you, I, know you've, I know you've spoken a bit about how Obama did a lot of the same thing, but in a more ethical way. Compare the two. I think when I mean, from my experience, it, 2008 was much more about just using the tools to mobilize people around like uh, building a bridge between online action and offline activism. So really, the whole strategy, what made it so powerful was uh, the campaign team quickly realized that they could use these tools to push people to take real actions in the world. And I think their intention in that way was good. They wanted to get out people to register to vote. They wanted to get out people to vote. They wanted to get people involved in the political process. So those same mechanisms can be used for any number of reasons. And I would argue that there are a lot of people now who are actually very invested in spreading misinformation and spreading very specific agendas. So yeah, I mean, I just think, I think now the, the interesting challenge that I see is that the ability of these tools to be used by, say, non-government agents or to be used by shadow interests is a lot easier because you never really know who's on the other side of the screen. So you have social media, which was created as a mechanism to democratize content to make us all be able to talk to each other under sort of the assumption that, oh, it's just going to be people talking to each other. And then I believe that it was created in good faith. And, and it's just being, you know, that good faith is sort of being exploited by people that have specific things that they want to get done. Is it possible that man's grasp exceeds his reach or however the quote goes, and that we've developed something that we can't cope with? There is a absolutely wonderful, very short book written by, I believe it's Ronald 
Wright. I know the last name is Wright, so please double check on that. But the book is called A Short History of Progress. And his thesis talks about how man has always innovated, but every single innovation that he's created has eventually resulted in something very detrimental. Like we can't stop ourselves from sort of falling off of this cliff of innovation. And what was different in the past was that the world wasn't as globalized and wasn't as connected. So you could have an empire rise and an empire fall, or you could have, you know, certain technologies be pushed to their limits, but there was still enough of us separate that, you know, the rest of us would kind of be able to recover and move on. And now that the world, he says, now that the world is so connected, it's like, we don't really have a plan B. If we're seeing now the ripple effects of having a globalized economy where our markets are interconnected, we're seeing now the impacts of technology created in one country that's being deployed in another. We're seeing all of these things. And his whole argument is like, we've always done this, except this time we're almost at the limit where, you know, if we screw this up, the planet, the whatever it is, if we, you know, if we screw this up, there really isn't a plan B. And folks like Elon say, oh, we'll, we'll go to Mars and we'll all be good. And yet at the same time, I mean, if you have, uh, what's the old saying? Um, uh, a hen in the hand is worth two in the basket or something. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Elon will have enough money to go to Mars and send some people to Mars. I'm sure a lot of the billionaires and millionaires will have zero problem, you know, doing that. I, I just think like, what about the rest of <laughs> What about the rest of us? I'm sure he'll have a great time on Mars, but you know, with I just worry because I think most of these impacts are going to hit very vulnerable segments of the population first. We're already starting to see. I mean, technology aside, we're already starting to see. You know, the the, the migrant crisis. We're starting to see the the impact of uh, climate migration, climate refugees. Like we're already starting to see the people that are being displaced by these issues, and that's only going to grow in scale as weather gets more severe. As you know. Not going to paint you a very sad scenario, but it's yeah. I, th- I think it's it's very it's very troublesome where we where we're at right now. What would you say are the two or three biggest problems facing humanity at the moment? Uh, climate change, uh, the widespread of these types of technologies in the, by by people that have a maybe malicious agenda, and the third I say would just be is it malicious or is it rational though? Just given the game they're playing, so most people aren't necessarily malicious. They're playing a game for one of two things, to make money, because that's kind of what the game is, or to get power, which is kind of the human side of, of the game. Is it the is it the people that are bad? Or is it that we've set up games where you have to win, someone has to lose for you have to win? It's, um, we've almost built, uh, what's the term for it? Net zero games or zero sum games. Okay, well, actually, that's pretty fair. You're right. Maybe malicious was not the right word. And I guess I just... Do we need new games? Yeah, we definitely need new games. I'd love to have games where we didn't always have to have a loser. You know, maybe that's the millennial snowflake. Everyone gets a ribbon for showing up part of me, but I kind of feel like I wish there was a different way to look at revenues or progress in a way that's a bit more inclusive, a bit more collaborative. um, Because I think now we're so interconnected that these disparities, like we're going to have a reckoning of some sort. But I don't think I don't maybe it's you're right, maybe malicious is not the right word, but I would say that there are very specific agendas that are at play, and those agendas are maybe in conflict with some of the principles that I wish people would live by, you know, a little bit more thoughtful of the environment, a little bit more aware of the impacts of, you know, labor, a little bit more aware of the of the realities of the struggle that so many people have all, all over the world. So um yeah, I think it's definitely a power game. I just think in this one scenario, when you look at it from a global perspective, there isn't going to be winners and losers. I think in some in some way, if we don't make the right decisions now, we're all going to lose. Nobody wins when everyone's losing. It's a, it's a hard thing to do to mobilize people around anything other than catastrophe. I mean, aliens invade, we might be able to fight. Obviously, we're going to lose terribly because their technology is incredibly advanced to get here. But we are at least like, shoot, guys, we're people. But when it's slow and steady, that's when you lose the race. I love that you said aliens, because when I talk about this with my friends, I always call it like the Independence Day factor. Like we have to wait until this, like this tragedy, this catastrophe is on our doorstep before everyone's like, oh, okay, we really need to deal with it now. And, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I think that's true. I unfortunately think it's coming a lot faster than we think. And um, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that too many people won't have to suffer before the rest of us kind of wake up and say, okay, like, we really need to take some drastic actions. 
Yeah, it's a problem because of the the exponential change. So things are going so fast. It's not like you hit the brakes and you stop. It's like you hit the brakes and you skid for 100 meters before you fall off the cliff. Which, uh, yeah. And I think it's hard. I think, I mean, and I'm just going to speak for myself here, but I think coming from a position of just privilege, just by virtue of living in a developed country, you know what I mean? Like just all the privilege that we have, I think that we would be like, we're quite ignorant in the sense that maybe we can't see a lot of the ramifications of what's happening like firsthand. And, and it's, it's, we don't see an immediate impact on our lives. So then it becomes really hard to justify, you know, changes in behavior or why you should care or why there's such an urgency because most people, you know, that who are privileged enough to like sort of be protected from some of these things, like they don't, they don't see it. So they don't see the damage. Why should I have to, you know, give up my SUV? Why should I have to do this? Why should I have to do that? And it's just because we are very, it's very difficult, I think, for humans sometimes to put themselves outside of their own bubble and to kind of take a look at some of the things that are happening across the board. How do we force people to do that? Because people have evolved to be lazy, to try to avoid conflict, to be nervous, avoid heights, and binge on sugar. How do we force people to do the hard things because they won't decide to do it themselves? I don't know if we can force them. I don't know if you can force people to do something like I have always preferred carrot, I guess, to stick. I always think that it doesn't have to necessarily be a stick, though. It could be a system wide thing. So like, let's say, for instance, in school, we took, I mean, take your take your topic. Let's say, in, for instance, in school, we wanted to promote something around animal welfare. And it was mandatory in schools that people watched the animal getting tortured from factory farming or something. I think that would have a decent impact just in terms of the structural side of things. Are there kind of hacks like that we can do where no one's hurt, but they're changed in a way for the better? And should we do that? Okay, so let's run with your example. So maybe instead of making it's a, people... Yeah, it's a, gruesome, it's a gruesome example. But, but let's, 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 run, let's run with it. Maybe instead of making people uh, watch videos of animals getting tortured, what if from the time children are very little in kindergarten, we taught them uh, concepts around mindfulness, around compassion, around how, you know, that how every soul is, and I'm just using your example, so I don't want people to like send me all these messages, but, uh, you know, I, I, what if we just taught them about mindfulness and compassion and about respecting life and about honoring life and about how we need to develop a different relationship with the planet and the creatures that live around it, like some religions do, you know? So th- in that case, you still get the same the same end result, but maybe it's it's not done in an, you know, in a sort of an unpleasant way. That doesn't mean that I don't think that sometimes we need system changes or sticks. We do. I just have never found in my own life a good way to force somebody to do something that they didn't want to do. So I've always worked in my in my interpersonal relationships with clients, with I've always worked under the with the ideology that it's really important for me to figure out how to frame whatever I'm talking about and how to make it so that they clearly see the benefit for themselves so that they're choosing to participate, they're choosing to, um, you know, to go in that direction because they think that it, it's going to make the most sense for them. I find that any results that you get from forcing people to do something like in the short term might have all sorts of other ramifications probably down the line. Definitely agree. There's one there's one concept I, I learned in business and it gets touted a lot. And it's that you don't want to have to educate the consumer. They have to be looking for what you're selling because educating them is very hard and expensive. And this sounds a lot like educating them, which is super hard and expensive. It's almost like, uh, and this is by no means a comparison of consumers, but it's it's very much like I have a dog and we look a lot at how you train dogs. And what we found is that when you train your dog to to come. Recall is one of the most important commands for you to teach your dog, right? Because you want to be able to, to call them and they should they have to come. And what's really funny about that is that like, in order to do that, you have to train your dog with positive reinforcement in such a way that no matter what is going on, your dog knows that coming to you is going to be the greatest thing ever, better than any other dog, any other treat, any other car, anything at all. And I see people what happens is like they call their dog, their dog doesn't come right away. And they go over and they just start yelling at the dog. And like the dog then comes, but he's like stressed and afraid. And it's like, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna help you achieve your goal. Like if you yell at your dog to do something, if you keep yelling at your dog that they should get off the couch, they're just going to learn to not be on the couch when you're home, you know, and I find that if it's much better to kind of, I don't know, work with people to help them make better decisions, 
which is why I really believe that like entrepreneurship and data used for good can help provide alternatives where maybe we can have better choices so that people don't feel like they have to give up a lot. People don't feel like we're asking them to suffer, to struggle or to do all of these things, that there's just better alternatives on the market that make more financial sense. They got to have their cake, eat it too, and it's got to be easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and lose, lose weight in the process. You've talked a bit about, you've talked a bit about tech protesting and how the nature of platforms has changed that. Yeah. Is there a particular kind of lens? I, I think it's evolved a lot from the, the early days. We had the revolutions uh, in Africa, Twitter going nuts. And now things today are very different. How do you see protesting in 2019? I think we are much more used to these spikes of engagement where I think the most one of the most often used tools of quote unquote protest is like shame. We like to shame people into doing something and then shame organizations. So somebody does something or gets videotaped doing something. And it's almost like the protest that you see is all of a sudden they go viral, they get retweeted. And then there's this very interesting. um, One of the things I research is like how long it takes like the public hive mind to track down personal details about somebody. So And then what are the consequences to that? And we've almost developed like a court of online opinion where something happens, people get outraged, they push for consequences, their identity is revealed, their employer, their school, whatever is contacted. And then there's all these consequences. And then it just kind of, once the consequence happens, it sort of like goes away. We don't really talk about that person ever again. And I find that really interesting. So I think it's given people on one hand, like this weird new power where they can like have this influence and they can be a part of this collective. I've also seen people, you know, slacktivism where people are just like sharing things, but not actually backing it up with financial contributions or, or, or writing your representative or calling or really engaging in any of the political mechanisms in order to generate real tangible societal change. So that's a bit concerning that you think to yourself, this horrible thing is happening. And I'm just going to click retweet and like check, like I've done my part in participating. But I also see a lot of opportunities as well. I see people teaching during the protests in Turkey a couple of years ago. I saw online communities of net citizens teaching each other how to be safe online. But I've also seen during the French elections, people teaching other people how to create fake memes and fake news memes and how to hijack the the cycle. So I think it's just, I think it's amplified everything that, that we've been doing. It's just created a couple of new channels and pipelines for us to, to engage in causes. We have to take a quick time out to tell you about today's show sponsor, Brand Crowd, an offshoot of Design Crowd, a company that we've used and loved in the past to get our podcast cover art done. How Brand Crowd works, you can get logos designed automatically for any projects that you need. It's incredibly fast, incredibly easy. And when you need to get a project going, you know an incredible logo is the first thing that you're going to need. If you go to disruptors.fm slash brand crowd, that's B R A N D. Crowd, C R O W D, disruptors.fm slash brand crowd. And you can go and see the designs they have. If there's anything you like that really sparkles your fancy and you think would be great for your business, go for it. Buy it. And it's quick, easy, fast. Your business is up and running. Disruptors.fm slash brand crowd. And now back to the program. It makes it faster, though. The, the mob is just there. In a lot of ways, it's like, it's kind of like a Soviet Russia. Of, and and I, someone metaphorized this for me once, but it's essentially, Someone does something, everyone's fine, we kill the elites, shoot, this guy's more intelligent than me, I'm angry, I get mad at him, we get rid of the one that's more intelligent than me, perfect, everything's good, shoot, there's someone less intelligent than me, now he goes after me, and it starts, and the spiral just goes downward with all types of conversation and kind of wrecking society. I mean, I don't know about wrecking society, I think the the bigger, the bigger underlying issue is that we as a society up to this point, have never been really taught how to manage an infinite informational ecosystem, meaning we have never really figured out how to navigate an endless stream of opinions and content and media that never stops. If you think about the way that you were taught in school, we've been taught to have this relationship with information where it's quite linear. You know, you go to your biology class on the first day, you sit in a syllabus, you get, you sit in a syllabus, you, you get a syllabus, you do the courses, you take an exam, and then you've mastered that level. And that's how we moved from grade to grade. That's how we did university. That's how we read books. That's how we used to listen to albums. That's how we used to watch the evening news before the 24-hour news cycle. So it's created this 
expectation of information engagement that has not been adapted for the fact that today we're in this endless vortex of information. There's no end point. And I think a lot of people don't know how to psychologically deal with that anxiety because we've been so conditioned to look for an exit point that no longer exists. So instead, this is why you have these algorithms that give you things um, that you like and, and, and sort of mirror your own worldview back at you. Because in a way, what that's doing is that's creating relief by saying, hey, we know it's scary. We know it's endless. But don't worry. Like, you have a pretty good idea of what's going on. We're just going to show you everything that you think is true. Like, that to me is a much bigger threat than anything else because that is undermining our ability to be able to engage with information, to deep dive, to have nuanced conf- uh, conversations with people that have opposing views, all of those skill sets are deteriorating. So if the technology facilitates decisions, that's one thing. But if the decision makers are no longer capable of making logical decisions, then that's the concerning part. Imagine if people were making decisions online. Imagine like in a perfect world, everyone was well-read and neutral and took the time to research the issues, took time to fact check, took time to look at, tra- you know, really took time to develop this like, perspective instead of, oh, you know, my, my Aunt Carol posted something on Facebook about vaccinations, and suddenly I'm going to develop a whole perspective on vaccinations and become super aggressive about it without ever developing, like, without taking the time to analyze the nuances of that story. You just kind of jump on it and go with it. It's, uh, it's super problematic. And if you, looked at, if you look at the results of the election, it's funny. Uh, typically, middle-aged folks blamed the young the younger generations for what happened and for being on online all the time. And yet, if you look at the people that shared the most fake news, it was it was the baby boomer generation. It was the middle aged generation who were too gullible and fell for all of it. Yeah, I, I, but I think it's across the board. I think and you know, I teach at one of the universities here in Paris. And I have noticed I've been teaching for the last couple of years, I have really noticed uh, an impact in my students' ability to concentrate, to read, and to deep dive with a concept. It's like, again, you think of how technology is training us. You have a platform like Twitter, whose entire worldview, their entire perspective is that everything can be summed up in a couple of lines. So now you have politicians that are tweeting about incredibly complex issues. We're talking, again, climate change. We're talking about geopolitics. We're talking about diplomacy. We're talking about Uh, migration, we're talking about immigration, we're talking about border security, like very meaty issues that require slowness and time to fully understand. And suddenly we're reducing them to two or three sentences that just get shared and remixed and retweeted without any of this like thoughtful analysis. So you have these technologies, we as a culture are becoming less and less capable of deep diving. I mean, my husband to me said the other day that he had to switch and to go go back to reading physical books because even on the Kindle, even on the iPad, like he was losing his capacity to be able to like stop and focus and read like a chapter. And I see that in the classroom with the younger generations that are coming in. Like I see it. I see that they have a hard time concentrating, a hard time differentiating sources of information, a hard time with like critical thought, critical reasoning. So for me it's less about the technology and it's more about the skill sets that we are lacking in managing and navigating that technology in an ethical, compassionate, thoughtful way. Well, no one's bored anymore. And that's the problem. Boredom's the key to creativity, more or less. Yeah, absolutely. It's, we are constantly stimulated. And we have learned in our obsession with productivity and our obsession with being hyper busy, we have learned that any time that isn't being used like to be stimulated in some way is bad. So think about the last time that you you know, didn't have your phone. It's like you're in line at the coffee shop and you have your phone. You're waiting for a flight. You're, you're you have your phone. You're on the plane. You have your phone. You're in a meeting. You have your phone. You're at dinner. You have your phone. So we've also are training ourselves, you know, to be so conditioned to this constant simulation that we are, I believe, weakening the part of our brain that requires deep focus and concentration and space to think, to reflect, to innovate. I remember we had a guest on the program a while back, Roel Vertigal, and he was saying. If you had a friend that ran up to you at dinner and started screaming that they needed to talk to you, you'd probably tell the friend to go screw themselves. And yet, your phone does that every single day. It's it's the ringer that's always on that regardless of what you're doing has the authority to interrupt you. Yeah. And I mean, if it was your friend, you know, as annoying as that would be, that would be one thing. I would say, forget a friend. I would say somebody kicks down your door and wants to sell you something. You know, it's a product, it's a service, it's your attention. And we just let them. And, you know, we, when your phone dings or pings or whatever, 
we know now that it creates a dopamine, a pleasure hormone reaction in the brain. So it, it creates this constant cycle of stimulation and seeking out that stimulation. But we've also tied a lot of those interruptions with uh, prestige, because if you're getting emails and you're connected and you're online, then you must be important, then you must be you know, special, then you must be needed. And so all of these like weird psychological elements also come into play. But one of the biggest changes that I've made in my own life is being being quite intentional about how I use social media, how I use devices, you know, when I use them, and what I am getting out of it. And I think like that level of intentionality, I, I wish more people would engage in because if you're intentional about it, then once again, back to our earlier part of the conversation, you get to choose what's helping you, you get to choose what's serving you, you get to choose what you like, what you want. And then all the parts that aren't good for you, you can just choose to let those go. Yeah, I always used to think everyone did this. I have a newsfeed blocker. I don't have social media on my phone. And the most important hack, turn off all the notifications from all your apps. The only one you really need is the phone. Maybe a text message or a WhatsApp if you get important ones and mute the ones that aren't important. And suddenly, the phone is just there when you need it. Sure, we still have that nagging itch to check emails, but you don't have someone else that's calling you and your nice little Pavlovian doorbell going off to come grab you for a treat. And it's also kind of amazing, like the, the, the ease with which we have enabled these devices to hijack our day and our time. I mean, my phone doesn't make any noises at all. The only thing that it does is it, is it um, if my husband or my family calls me on the phone, which is the emergency protocol, you know, then it will ring. But text messages, emails, all of that stuff, it doesn't make any noise. And I actually even have a cover on my phone. I don't even really look at the screen. So like when I choose to look at the screen, that's when I can get updated. It's not interrupting me. And, you know, as a researcher and as a writer, like I need those periods of deep concentration. And yet every single interruption just knocks you out of your flow. And then it takes you much longer than you would think to get back into the groove. Definitely. Airplane mode at night. It's uh, I can't speak highly enough. Either that or off one or the other. Don't, I don't even have my phone in my bedroom anymore. I need, an al- I need an alarm. That's the problem. Oh, my God. The, okay. Well, my one thing, the best device that I've had, and I know a lot of people talk about it, but I, I have, I've had one for the last couple of years is a light alarm clock. It's amazing. It's like the best thing you can do for yourself. It wakes you up in such an, a, a, like a natural way because it starts off really dim and it slowly gets brighter. So there's no jarring noise that like pulls you, you know, into this like dark room and it's all of a sudden you've got to get up and do all of those things. It's just, you just kind of open your eyes and you find yourself awake because it's time to get up and it's gradually gotten brighter. So again, it's a system that's designed to work with the way that we're wired, not disrupt us and and create a super stressful situation first thing in the morning. I've seen some really interesting DIY uh, biohacker stuff, essentially essentially wristbands that would track your sleep depth, but then setting a window where you want to wake up. And once you were getting into the lightest parts of sleep somewhere in that window, it would zzz, zzz, so you wake up at the perfect time feeling refreshed. I feel like that is the future that we're moving towards. We're just not moving there quickly enough. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure about this, but my sense is, is that with the light alarm clock, because we're talking about like evolutionary processes, we have a certain sensitivity to light. So I believe like as you as your body and your mind senses the change in light, signaling to your body, dawn is coming, it's time to get up soon. I think you're your um, natural rhythms will the, like will adapt accordingly. I feel like you're going to come down from that deep, you know, REM cycle into uh, a more wakeful state because, from an evolutionary perspective, it didn't make any sense for your body not to respond to changing light conditions because it wouldn't be really safe for you to be having these deep, intense dreams like when the sun came up and you would be like at risk or you had to get up and, and do stuff. Cir- circadian rhythm sleep. There's so much that's uh, there's so much that coming. We were talking a little bit about deep work, and I think that segues at least decently into the gig economy and the future of jobs. I know you've talked about this a fair bit. Where do you see us headed? Where do I see us headed? I am concerned a little bit that some of these networks and some of these gig economies like don't actually provide the livable wage that people need to survive. So Again, I think that goes back to how we as a society design policies and systems in order to protect people. And I think that we can't really look at the corporations, again, that are that have a, a goal and an agenda of generating revenues and profits to look out for the well-being of people on the whole. So 
for me, I, I just always am very, I'm just cautious, right? Because on one hand, I think it's great that people have the autonomy to be able to find different jobs, to have different sources of revenue in order to be able to have a bridge, you know, to starting your own business or being self-sufficient or, or whatever that is. I think the opportunity is there. And I think that's great. On the other hand, as we've seen these dynamics play out, uh, at least here in Europe with like uh, Deliveroo, you know, we have those um, like a like Seamless or Uber Eats or something. We have like one of those bike courier delivery systems here. And there have been a lot of conversations because, because Deliveroo doesn't hire them as employees. They're independent contractors. They're essentially gig economy workers. But that comes with a lot of limitations and that comes with, uh, they lose a lot of protections in that way. So one of the biggest things that's being debated right now is within the gig economy, what employee protections do you need to have? Because in order to make sure that people aren't being discriminated, that they're not being exploited, that they're not being taken advantage of. So, uh, you know, I would love, I'm just, I'm, I'm always cautiously optimistic. I think like the, it's, it's an interesting platform for sure. There's a lot of opportunity, but I've seen a lot of examples or I've seen a lot of cases where it's pro- it creates other problems in different ways. And then you have the, ind- the individuals that are being that are competing on who can provide the lowest price, essentially pricing themselves out of a livable wage. And then that's concerning to me because I don't think that's very sustainable in the long term. Yeah. Ultimately, the gig economy is perfect for companies because as opposed to the employee setup where they're more or less subsidizing the employee's inefficiency, How, what percentage of time are people working at work and being productive? I don't know the number, but it's certainly not 100. But because the, yeah, because the company has the profit, they can afford to take that hit on the overhead on the efficiency. When they don't have to split that, but they're instead separating the income before it even happens, and they don't have those extra healthcare costs, suddenly the, the company has all of the upside and none of the downside. And to kind of the flip side for the employees or the giggers. Yeah. And even, I mean, wages aside, wages is a huge issue, but wages aside, the conversation that I was hearing is that as independent contractors, uh, when companies hire independent contractors, they're not subject to the same uh, like disc- like anti-discrimination uh, laws that govern hiring employees, you know? So they can kind of, it gives them like way more freedom to get around a lot of the protections that were put into place for full-time employees. So what you have is you have organizations that recognize that there's this new class of labor that is exempt from a lot of the protections that workers have fought so hard to secure, and they're just taking full advantage of it. And they're and then they kind of reframe it as, okay, well, this is innovation, this is the future, this is that, but like they're sidestepping, you know, unemployment benefits, uh, injury insurance, like all of these things, all of those costs and liabilities are essentially being passed on to the individual. I mean, you look at Uber, and Uber is like a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company, but it's the drivers that are carrying the cost of the vehicle, of the gas, of the permits, of the all of those things, right? And so it just feels like a little bit unfair to me as a way to structure, you know, we're, we're supposed to be kind of, we're supposed to be moving towards the future. And actually those techniques are close, more closely mirroring some of the labor practices during the industrial revolution than some sort of like bright new technological future. And not only that, the gig workers are more efficient as well, but they're they're losing out because of it, in a in a sense. It's a it's, yeah. Well, you know, like during the industrial revolution, there was these techniques, which was called you know the great speed up and the great stretch out. The stretch out was when they added more responsibilities to your job, and the speed up was when they asked you to do more. And with again going back to this delivery example, because I was just reading about it recently, one of the things um, that they do to the is that you know the 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 guy who's on his bike, he's out there delivering his neighborhood, like in this neighborhood. Suddenly, they expand. He says, like, after three months of working or whatever it is, they expand the market. So they have a larger territory to cover, which means, you know, they only get paid when the delivery happens, which means they're making less. Then they tell them that they have to maintain a quota. So they actually start increasing the quota of how many deliveries they have to make to remain in good standing to continue to get more opportunities to fulfill these jobs. So you you have a technology platform that is enabling a new form of work, but you have policies that are essentially just the digitization of really manipulative labor practices. Which leads us into AI and automation. How much does that scare you? Um, I mean, I just get worried that I get worried that we are implementing technologies before fully understanding what the implications really are. And, you know, we're automating I'll tell, I'll give you a really funny example, which is I was at a conference and I met with a CEO of a consumer packaged goods company, okay? 
and they have been mandated. Uh, he had been mandated by the board to automate, automate, automate to cut labor costs, cut labor expenses, right? So he's been going through automating, cutting labor expenses, letting people go, all of those things. And they suddenly realize that, wait a minute, if we're doing this and our competitors are doing this and everybody is doing this, they legitimately just realized that like that would mean that nobody would be able to like afford their products. If nobody has work, then who, how are, is, how is anybody getting the income to purchase these products? So that realization has started a, a, a new effort. And this company is now suddenly looking at alternative sources of revenue. They're, they're just exploring universal basic income because they're like, wait a minute, we're going to, if we automate people out of jobs, we're also removing an entire consumer market. And this is what I mean. It's like, we're going full speed ahead, looking for efficiencies, efficiencies, but there's a lot of other impacts on our social lives, on consumer lives, on how we just you know, live and how we survive that I don't think many people have fully thought through. When you reach the end game of dieting, you die. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's only there's only so far you can take it. I know Bezos, he's he's advocated before for universal basic income. He's basically saying checkmate just a few years early. Yeah, I I don't know. I have a lot of trouble. I have a lot of trouble with the way that we idolize people that just hoard so much wealth. You know, I just, there's something about it that just seems so bizarre to me. I think like work hard and, you know, be financially independent, be financially wealthy, but like, what does he have? Like $169 billion or something like something crazy like that. And it's just like, how is it that we live in a society where one person can have that much wealth and like the, you know, average daily income in some parts of the world, like under a dollar. So I, sometimes I find figures like that really problematic because it's just it just highlights the inequalities of the way that these systems were designed. And so, you know, Amazon just has a lot of very controversial business practices and how they interact with communities, interact with small businesses, with, you know, all sorts of things, the, their, their labor practices inside some of their factories, like all of these things. And so to me, I sort of feel like it's a bit disingenuous for him to come in and be like, oh, universal basic income as like as as though he's doing it for humanity's best interest. You know, it's like it's obviously not what you're doing it for. Because if you were interested in making the world a little bit of a better place with your enormous vast wealth, then you would be doing a lot more than you're doing. It's like Walmart, the the Walmart heirs give away a bunch of money in their trust, but at the same time, the people working at Walmart can't afford a living to, to live. Yeah. And like people were like, oh, he donated this much amount. And it's like, it seems like a lot until you look at it as a percentage of, you know, your total wealth. And it's just, and maybe, you know, this is just my perspective. And I know it runs counter to a lot of the success mythologies we like to tell people where everyone wants to be a billionaire and everyone wants this, but like $169 billion, like nobody needs nobody needs that much money. Sorry. Like you just, you just don't. Like at that point, it just becomes bizarre. And I would love to see more people having, uh, you know, who have achieved this level of success to turn around and be like, what, what you said, like, one of us can't win if the rest of us are losing, right? And it's this understanding that they're lucky, they they benefited, they got all these opportunities, but there's a lot of inequality in the world. And like that money could go a long way to I don't know, help fight diseases, help with climate change, help educate young people, help. Yeah, like there's so many ways that you can kind of spread that opportunity around that it always is very bizarre to me when we just like celebrate people like just sitting on top of this large pile of money. And it's a problem because people usually don't change until they're starting to get to the age of, oh my God, I'm going to die soon. Gates is doing a good job now, but it's the same thing that you see in the past. People, when they were wealthy, suddenly became patrons of the arts and religion trying to buy their way into heaven. And pe people do similar things now, buying their way into public public love. But I, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because they, you've got to do, you got to hustle and grind to build something. But at some point when things are moving, Bezos could not work another day and he will be well off. He could work every day trying to give away his money or invest it in things that would actually improve the world. He would have a very hard time doing that. That's a... Uh, What's the what? What's the fun? I'm not saying, and I'm not saying, don't work hard, don't hustle. I'm not saying, don't build wealth. I'm not saying, don't aim to be a millionaire. I'm not like, I'm not saying any of that. Like, if that's what you want to do, go and do it, and get the 
you know, get the super yacht and get the house and get the houses and get the private jet. But it's like he has all of that and there's still so much left over. I guess I'm saying it's at what point is it enough? No one no one actually wants that. The reason why they all chase it is all of them don't feel like enough. That's the that's the hidden secret that none of them will tell you. Well, of course, and it's easy to see because if 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 it's easy to see that if you are still dissatisfied with all of the stuff that you have, then that reflects like an inner that reflects something that you feel is missing, you know, on the inside. And I think that there we have all these studies about the the you know the the baseline and about how after you earn a certain amount of money like that your money is proportionally linked to happiness until a certain level but like once you get to that level then the the increases in wealth have smaller and smaller um returns on your happiness so like you know once you can afford to take a nice vacation once you're debt free once you have you own a house if that's what you want once you like once you have those things where you're no longer like worried you're no longer living paycheck to paycheck you're no longer stressed out you're no longer one you know, one unexpected incident away from financial catastrophe. Like once you do all of those things, your kids are taking care of all of that stuff, you know, that you can live a good life. You can donate to charity. You can do nice things for your family. If the roof suddenly leaks, you're fine. It's like, once you get past that point and you upgrade all across the board, it's like, well, he still has over a hundred billion dollars to, you know what I mean? Like it just becomes... I don't know. This is just really my personal opinion, but I just kind of shake my head and I think like, think of all the good that you could be doing with that money. Is that why Europe is a better place than the US? Because they have that social safety net. A lot of those things we talked about are in essence, a social safety net. Okay. Well, I don't think, I, I, you know, I, I don't know about better, but what I think is, is that I have a lot of sympathy and compassion for um, Americans, for Canadians, you know, when I lived in North America, uh, when I, lived in, I grew up in Canada, I'm Canadian. And it's it's one of those things where for many people, for a lot of families, for a lot of people, uh, work is a huge survival imperative because your health insurance is tied to your job and you have to work all the time to make ends meet. And there's been like wage stagnation and all that stuff. So unlike in Europe or other countries where there's a bit of a social net, it's you don't have this like deep fear hanging over you that, you know, if you got sick, or if your family members got sick, that it would financially devastate you, you know, like if you, God forbid, um, got cancer, that you wouldn't have to give up your home or that I was I was, I was reading a, um, online the other day, about somebody that has to go to the pharmacy and pay like $700 for insulin that they have to choose between insulin and rent, between insulin and food, between insulin and clothes. And like the idea that somebody would have to make that decision just sounds horrible to me. And again, I definitely recognize the privilege. Like I was very lucky to live in France, to grow up in Canada, countries where the fundamental belief is that healthcare is a right, that every person's entitled to that level of healthcare, that you shouldn't have to worry about insulin. You shouldn't have to decide between insulin and rent. So in some sense, I understand the need to make a lot of money, to hustle, to accumulate this wealth, because it's a response to this deep-seated anxiety that many people have about surviving. And I think if we, if there was a bit more of a social net, then maybe people could breathe a little bit. Maybe they didn't have to worry about you know living paycheck to paycheck. I would check these numbers, but I, I read somewhere that like the average American like only has like a couple hundred dollars in savings, if that. It's like 400 bucks. Don't worry, we've got way more in credit card debt. So that like 400, you know what I mean? And so like how scary must it be to, to think like if my car breaks down and I can't get to my job and if I get fired, my grandmother can't get her insulin to live. It's, it's, fucking bon- it's fucking bonkers. Wild. That is wild to me. And it makes me so sad because you know, you're because because you have this narrative that everyone has to work so hard, you have this narrative that if you work hard, you'll succeed. And you have people that are working so hard, and like something happens, that's completely out of their control. And then suddenly, it's like they lose their house, or they lose their acts. I mean, it's just, that's the one thing where it's like, I have so much, like, just respect for everyone who's out there, like trying to make ends meet and just trying to survive without the social net, because it's hard enough with the social net that without the social net, it just feels like, this extreme survival sport, you know, like, it's just we've thrown people into this pit. And we're just like, there you go. See you later. Meanwhile, you've got people sitting on $169 billion. 
It's the Hunger Games. I've heard a lot of people say that they don't like going to San Francisco anymore just because of the abject poverty. And yet it's lauded as one of the greatest places on earth. Where are the uh, where are the Amazon shelters and where is the, you know, Airbnb free public school and where is like all these unicorn companies? It's like, where is the, you know, so yeah, I don't know. I think that reflects less of a technology. I think that reflects a failure in societal design in how we look at the world and how we want the world to be. There's about to be 10,000 new millionaires in and around uh, San Francisco this year. Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, and Pinterest going public. Fantastic. I mean, I don't know. It's a bubble, man. Like it's... It's it's interesting one way or the other. Let's, Let's wrap this up on a happy note. What technology, what two technologies are you most excited about and why? What two technologies am I very excited about? Hmm. I'm really interested in a lot of the work that's being done right now uh, with AI, but specifically around healthcare, you know, like cracking. I, I was um, out in San Francisco, actually, uh, and I, I met somebody that worked with uh, IBM, with Watson, but the health, the health element. And they were talking about how now like their technology can go through um, an amount of data that used to take doctors and researchers like days and days to do it. It can like look through and, um, you know, analyze all this data in like split second that they're having higher rates of being able to identify like malignant cells. So anything that I think is going to improve the common good, improve our ability to create cures, improve our ability to be able to predict or prevent natural disasters. Like that's where I get really excited about because that's where I think it can make a real difference. I'm excited by a lot of these sort of uh, like, those are the things that I look to that I say, okay, like that can be, that's going to make a really big positive impact. I'm also just very interested in like augmented reality. I think it's super fascinating as somebody that loves stories and loves the storytelling, I'm always interested with how the content that we're engaging with from like a story perspective, from a content consumption perspective is going to evolve. And, um, you know, always as a way to maybe like teach a bit of empathy or allow us to grow our perspective a bit of the world. But, you know, it's not really technology. I think there's a lot of really great technology that's out there. We're seeing entrepreneurs that are coming up with incredible solutions, incredible, like I saw designs for these like living, almost like green pillars that have AI sensors that are able to process the same amount of um, carbon dioxide as uh, like an acre or two acres of forest. So I think if the intent is there for it to be inclusive, collaborative, responsible, ethical, then I'm actually really excited about a lot of stuff on the horizon. I just wish we were having more conversations about some of these, I don't know, like ambiguous or vague goals that these companies set when we don't really know what their worldview is and we're just kind of along for the ride. We're wired to find and solve problems. Let's make sure we're finding and solving the right ones. I think that's a I think that's a good summary and place to start wrapping up. If you had to leave people with one thing before you tell them where to find you, what would it be and why? It can be a quote, a call to action, anything. If I had to leave them with one thing, if I had to leave them with one thing, I would say be informed, not afraid. My biggest pet peeve is that we are spreading a lot of panic and a lot of anxiety about many of these technologies. And the response to that is people just get overwhelmed and then they just don't want to dig into this issue. Just take the time to be informed, to poke around, ask yourself questions, like look under the hood of some of these platforms, look beyond the tool itself and ask yourself, you know, whose vision of progress does this tool represent? What is their vision of the future? Do I believe in this or not? Do I have a good understanding of how my information is being used? Because the the, the best thing to do is to be informed because once you have that information, then you can make the best choices for whatever it is that you want to do and how you want to engage with these tools so that you get to decide and they're not the ones that are deciding. And the more people that do that, the better world we have. So here's a plug, guys. Share disruptors with a friend or a family. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And if you want to support us, disruptors.fm slash Patreon. Now, Rahaf. I wanted to give you one chance. Tell me, where can people find you and connect with you? I am all over the web. You can find me at rahafharfush.com or rahafharfush on Twitter or yeah, anywhere kind of under that name, you should be able to find me. And don't worry, guys, we'll have links and all of that in the show notes. It's not quite as easy as the boring white guy name of Matt Ward. So thank you for coming today, Rahaf. This has been a, it's been a lot of fun. It's been interesting. We've, div- we've dove around a lot of t- topics, but I think that's what we need today. 
Thank you so much for having me. Cheers, guys. Hope you've enjoyed it. Till next time. Shipping can be complicated with the uncertainty of cost and which carrier to use, plus tracking all of your packages. It can be a monster of a headache when it comes to time and money. That's why Send Pro Online and Pitney Bowes is sponsoring the Syndicate Podcast. They're helping e-commerce companies and merchants to easily save time and money, compare rates, and do a better, more effective job of getting their products to customers without throwing away all the margins on shipping. If you go to pb.com angel, you can find out more details, get a free 30-day trial, and a free 10-pound scale so that you never overpay on shipping. Again, that's pb.com slash angel for more details and to sign up for that free trial. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to the Syndicate dot vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals this has been another episode of the syndicate thanks for tuning in and we'll see you guys again next week